We recognize that as we've worked our way through this letter, we've seen that uh, Paul has laid a foundational discourse in the first three chapters where we have seen the exalted Christ on display. First in chapter 1, where the heavenly witness to the exalted Christ was on display. Then in chapters 2 and 3, where the earthly witness to the exalted Christ was on display. And here in chapters 4 and 5, Paul turns our attention from doctrine to devotion, to the earthly reality of the exalted Christ. This earthly reality was hinted at in chapter 2, when Paul said that the new humanity was being created in Christ, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Again, progressing the analogy with reference to not only being the temple of God, but Christ's very body. In chapter 3, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, in chapter 4, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of a, up of itself in love. And so as a new creation, this body is to act accordingly, to put away falsehoods and to speak truth, to put away self-seeking anger, to, put away, to, to no longer steal, but instead work so that provision can be made for those in need, to refrain from speech that tears down and seek to build one another up. Finally, Put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and be kind to one another, being ready to forgive as you have been forgiven. And here in chapter 5, the Spirit addresses the earthly reality of the exalted Christ through the lives of his children. And the first part of the chapter, as we will spend uh, many weeks uh, going through, the first part of the chapter, Paul addresses general directions for the Christian life. Common to all Christians are the precepts found here in the ver first 20 verses. But then in verse 21 and through the first part of chapter 6, he turns to more specific life situations, not necessarily common to all Christians, but that that they would walk in a manner worthy even in those specific life situations they may find themselves in. And this morning we address just the first two verses of chapter 5, and um, it is one of those verses or those groups of verses, I guess, uh, that, and maybe I should find myself, and there's a sense in which I find myself like this every week, but there is even more sense as we approach these first two verses that I feel unfit for the task. I feel uh, unworthy of the message for in this high calling to be imitators of God and to walk in love just as Christ has loved us. There's nothing that cuts quickly more to my heart to realize how lack 
of imitation there is of God in my life, how lack I am of walking in love just as Christ has loved me. And so I am so thankful as we will enter into these verses to see that not only do we find the law, but we find the gospel attended to it so that we may have right motivation, that we may have a right vision and understanding of these things so that we may come together this morning and be encouraged in the Lord and not be as we read providentially in Psalm 66, that we would not be like the enemies of God. In verse 3 of Psalm 66, because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. May it never be amongst the saints of the Lord that we would give feigned obedience to God as his enemies do, but that we would be entreated and inclined by his love and mercy to us in Christ. We'd walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 5. I'll read the first six verses. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immortality or immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Well, the grass wither and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him in prayer. Oh Lord, we come to you in prayer this morning here on the precipice of addressing these first two verses of Ephesians 5 with much trepidation, Lord, with much reverence and awe of the height of your morality, of the height of your being and the depth of your love. Oh Lord, help us now in these moments that we may be edified by your word, be admonished and corrected where needed, be taught up in the things of the Lord. We would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, if you're keeping notes, you can keep track of uh, where I'm at this morning under these two headings as we'll address these two verses as such. High precept and deep well. High precept and deep well. The high precept is there in, in verse 1 in the beginning of verse 2. That we would be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Could there be any higher precept in scripture? We may ask ourselves often is as we understand that the moral law of God as contained in the Ten Commandments, we understand that to reflect God's character. 
So we're, it's summed up in the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law. This sums up being imitators of God. That we would be like God. That we would be imagers of God. That as we obey the law, we obey the law because it comes from the one who is good. The one who is just. The one who is pure. God possesses these things not as uh, separate parts that he's pure because he acts purely or he's good because he does goodness or he's love because, he's, because he acts in love. No, he, he just is these things. God is love. So that love is God. God is good. Good is God. And so here it says, therefore be imitators of God. Oh, how unapproachable it is for us to imagine that as we think of these things and they relate to us and somehow we're supposed to walk in them. Another translation says, be followers of God. How do we follow after the one who just is? Well, it's quite telling in his, in chapter, uh, in verse 2 that We are to follow after God as we have Christ. Christ who is our example. Christ who is the second Adam. Christ who is our brother, our co-heir, who is our head, our mediator. He is the one who we are to imitate and so imitate God. It's interesting here that in verse 1, as Paul continues on in these order of precepts, that he, in addressing the church, he has to say this to the church. He has to tell them to be like God. Some of this should be seemingly innate. I'm so thankful for God's word. None of it is careless or none of it is worthless. It is of the highest worth. But if you contemplate the necessity of this precept that we would be imitators of God, we would do so under the idea of understanding our own condition. Paul Bain says our nature is to do to others as we see them do to us. But the nature of God's saints is to look up to the Lord, who only gives us the light of better example. Every creature naturally does as it sees those of its kind and nature do in good or evil. Hereby we may know our kind and generation, whether we be of God or of the world. You will know a tree by its fruit. We can categorize animals in different families and different species according to their characteristics and how they act and how they look. We do so the same with plants. We do so with all the natural world. And so it is with the spiritual world, with the supernatural, that we would be imitators of God, that if somebody were to analyze us, they would be able to come to the family and the species such that we would be considered children of God. Here we can employ 
two illustrations, not certainly original to me, but two illustrations can be employed here as we think of being imitators of God, one of shadow and one of parentage. Consider of shadow. We are to imitate God as a shadow imitates the body. Consider your shadow. For a shadow, your shadow receives its existence from you. It receives its form from you. And it certainly receives its movement from you. Unless you're Peter Pan, then you have to chase it around. But isn't that such the things of fairy tales as, as they're so contrary to reality? And so we recognize that our shadow receives its being, form, and movement from us. So us too, as we are imitators of God, are to receive our being, form, and movement from Him. Consider in being, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 24, we read that we put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. We receive our being from God. Our new creation we receive from God. We are new created in God and we are new created in the form of righteousness and holiness of truth. So that the movement the imitation, the, the, the action that comes from this being and form follows suit with such. Laying aside falsehood, be angry and do not sin, no longer stealing. Following along in chapter 5, the immorality and impurity that would not be named among us, nor filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting. For we imitate God as our shadow imitates us. But it is of greater connection than a shadow. For who loves his shadow? I mean, we might get entertainment from our shadow if we do shadow puppets or, or the like. But it, if we look at also the other illustration, for we are to be imitators of God as of parentage. And from this we can see what is the motivation of this high priest precept to be imitators of God. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to be imitators of God. We are to live as those who are dearly loved. We are to live as those who are dearly loved. And I come back to the idea of God in himself, that we recognize God is love. And so we are loved by the God who is love. And so his love for us in Christ is unchanging. It wanes not. Brian Chapel rightly observes, he says, here we can plainly see a demonstration of Herman Ritterboss's often quoted observation that in gospel teaching, the imperative rests on the indicative, and this order is not reversible. The indicative, who we are, as being beloved children, is clearly stated here by Paul. That is, by Christ's reconciliation, we of all nations and backgrounds are, rec are reckoned as God's dearly loved children. 
God's imperatives and our obedience rest on that loving relationship. They do not form the relationship. We obey because we are loved. We are not loved because we obey. The love of our Father precedes and stimulates the obedience of His children. We are to forgive and live and love as dearly loved children, imitating the one who already is our Father, not performing to bribe God to become our Father. It's interesting as, as I raise my children in their early stage of life, they obey me, I think, largely because they fear me. They obey me because they know that if they disobey, they receive correction. There is a right fear they have of their father in obedience. But that obedience cannot last their whole life. It must at some point in time, as, as it's certainly not devoid of it in their early life, but it's backed and it's formed by my affirmation of love to them. So that as they get older, my desire is that they wouldn't obey me because they fear me, but they would obey me because they love me. And so it is with the Lord. We may have been chastened by the Lord into believing that we feared that we would die in our sins and be cursed by God rightfully and justly cursed by God to hell eternally. And so we go to the one who, who can damn us to hell and we go to him for salvation. And when we receive the mercy of God and we see the love of God in Christ, it is to motivate us to obey him to imitate him, to want to be like him. It is natural for children to want to be like their correspondent parent. Or sometimes it happens where a daughter wants to be like her father in some ways or a son wants to be like his mother in some ways, but it often works out to where the son desires to be like the father, the daughter desires to be like the mother. So it is with us. Beloved children, loved of God. We are to forgive and live and love as dearly loved children, imitating the one who already is our father, not performing to bribe God to become our father. This points us to the reality that we are the posterity of the second Adam. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living 
soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven, as is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. There Paul making a contrast between Adam and Christ or a comparison between Adam and Christ. Adam, the first man. Christ, the second man. Or the last Adam. Christ or excuse me, Adam became a, uh, excuse me, Adam became a living soul. Christ, a life-giving spirit. What's the difference there? Adam receives all from God. Christ gives all of himself. We are the posterity of the second Adam. Adam was given the precept in the garden to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion. He was given this precept prior to the fall. And so he was given this precept as being made in the image of his creator. So, so too we would expect the same precept given to who? To Christ. This precept to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion is given to Christ as the second Adam. Isaiah 53.10. We know it well. We've read it often. The suffering servant. It's interesting in verse 10 though we see, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will proclaim his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Here the suffering servant would see his offspring. The suffering servant would uh, be fruitful and would multiply. We know of the other places where the kingdom or Christ is given all dominion and power. We see there that that precept of Adam was a type of precept to be given to Christ, where Christ being the second Adam, the greater Adam, is fruitful. And he has and exercises dominion. We are to be imitators of God as, as a shadow imitates the body. And as a child imitates their parent, so we too have Christ. Christ is our parent in this way. We are to walk as Christ walked. We are to desire to be like him. In verse 2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Oh, that we would be imitators of God. Oh, that we would seek 
the great blessing in seeking after him, but not in order to win his favor, not in order to earn his parentage, but because we are beloved children. We are to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. How often and how much, what is the capacity, what is the extent of our love, where are we to draw from in our loving others? We are to draw from the deep well of Christ's love for us. Brothers and sisters, how we treat one another, the limits of our love for them express our understanding of what we think the limits of Christ's love for us are. If you think that Christ's love for you is boundless, if you think Christ's love for you is unending, so should your love be for each other. To walk in love is to live in it. It's to abide in it. It's to be fragranted by it. We are to walk in the love of Christ, especially amongst each other. How we speak of one another, how we treat one another, how we think of one another should be grounded in the deep well of Christ's love for us. So much that as we then consider that love beyond those bounds into the world, it becomes clear to us that we would even be able to love our enemies. Matthew 5 is that uh, beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount. Paul, or Paul, uh, Christ is expounding upon the law of God, showing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees where they thought they could earn the favor of God through obedience to the law, and they lowered the standard of the law so that they could walk through it or walk in it. And he tells them, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the good, on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There again, that high precept from Christ, never lowered, never relenting, that we would look to that and say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus we may be saved. But consider 
here that our love towards others is to be fed by the deep well of Christ's love for us. Again, in Romans 12, beginning in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul's going to go on to say something similar. He's going to say, therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not practice in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. We come to walk in love just as Christ has loved us. We are to love one another. We are to love other image bearers the same. For we are rooted in our belovedness, that we are beloved. And certainly, lest we think that it's because of our loveliness that we are beloved, lest we think that this is that we love or that we be our imitators of God according to our own righteousness. For we are able in God's, with God's help to desire to do such things, to love one another. And we do so in many ways. But we lean not upon the substance of our act. Our confession is helpful in chapter 16, paragraph 6 on, of good works. It says, yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Neither also is our, are we able to say, well, I'm just an imperfect person and use that as an excuse for lack of love. No, strive to love, to draw from the deep well of Christ's love for us so that we would love others. Though we understand it will be accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. And so really that's how we should receive the love of others. 
that we should expect others to love us with many weaknesses and imperfections. And so we in turn give them grace in loving us and we seek to love them all the more. Again, my helpful companion in Ephesians is Paul Bain. He says, And the goodness of all the good works we do stands not in the substance of the work, but in relation and conformity to the rule and example by which they are done, that they be done in faith, which only looks to God to imitate. You know, it's oftentimes we get treated a certain way by many people outside the church and inside the church, and we say, well, if they're going to treat me like that, then I'm going to treat them the same. If, if that's how it's going to be, well, then that's how it's going to be. May it never be amongst the saints. And if it is, may we repent quickly. May we look to the standard and rule and example, and may we act in faith and look to God and God alone. This is communicated in the last part of verse 2, describing Christ's offering and sacrifice as a fragrant aroma hearkens to when a sacrifice or offering was pleasing and acceptable to God in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 29. We've already read at a, examples out of Numbers this morning. Let's look in Exodus 29. This is the consecration of the priests before entering into the service. This is their ordination into the priesthood. Here the priests are uh, being consecrated to their service, and so sacrifices are commanded for their sins and purification. Beginning in verse 15, You shall also take the one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall slaughter the ram and take its blood and sprinkle it around on the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head. You shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. This language is replete throughout the book of Leviticus. If you were to look through Leviticus and look for soothing aroma, you would find it after every sacrifice that it would be a soothing aroma to the Lord, an acceptable sacrifice, one that pleases the Lord. Here we see the antitype to all those sacrifices. gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, as a soothing aroma. Here Thomas Manton rightly says that God has declared himself satisfied and has approved the sacrifice which he offered for us. 
and therefore our sin cannot make us loathsome and unsavory to God and stir up his wrath against us, but that we have ground of hope, yea, of sure confidence that he has smelled a sweet savor of rest and his wrath is appeased and that he has accepted the sacrifice offered by our Redeemer. There is no more necessary for paying the price and ransom for our souls, for God the most just would not accept of an imperfect satisfaction or give testimony that he was well pleased with it. The reality that Christ has offered himself up as an offering and in sacrifice to God as a pleasing aroma, as the epitome and the pinnacle of Christ's love for us. And then we are to walk in love just as Christ has loved us. And that we would look at one another and say, well, I think I'm about done with you. I think... I think I'm ready to repay you for how you or how I at least perceive you have paid me. Or that we would go to God and be fearful that his wrath is stirred up against us for our sin. That we would go to him as a wrathful judge and not a loving father. Again, I want my children to come to me with their wrongdoing, not in fear, but in love, knowing that I am ready to forgive them, though there may be temporary consequences, and there is temporary consequences in our relations. But as, it, as far as it is for us, we should really weigh those temporary consequences. We should weigh these things very carefully as much as you weigh the consequences you met out to your children who are repentant of their wrongdoing. That we would not come to God as a wrathful judge, but we would come to him in the sureness of his satisfaction of the offering and sacrifice of Christ. That we would not have entered this room thinking that you have accomplished something, that you have earned something or a standing with God by being here or you earned something in a standing with God this week because you were good with your quiet times or your prayers were extra long or that you treated each other well and you didn't sin. Certainly, may the Lord bless all those things to the furtherance of your faith but they cannot take you one iota, one hair's length farther in the righteousness that you've attained because of the offering and sacrifice of Christ. And so when we find ourselves lacking imitation of God, living according to the flesh, as Paul says in other places, and not living according to the Spirit, when we find ourselves not walking in love, we'd be quick to come to Christ, to come to the Father in the love of Christ, knowing that he will forgive us, knowing that he has forgiven us in Christ. That the love of God would move us to do so.
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. It reveals to us the greatness of your being, the greatness of your character, the unattainableness of a righteousness that would be acceptable to you, except through the imputed righteousness of Christ our Lord. O oh Lord, to be your imitations is to be created anew in your likeness, to be created anew in the second Adam. Oh, that we would walk in his love amongst each other and amongst those who we come into contact with, that his fragrant aroma would be upon us. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for the assurance of pardon because of Christ's sacrifice. May that be enough to move us to obey you in all things. For your glory in your strength, for the kingdom, for your good. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.